This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Richer. Uh, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show, the best thing you can do is join our Facebook group uh, by going on Facebook and searching Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. I do have to caution you that uh, if you do go on Facebook and spend a lot of time on there, you very well could go mad. That is at least one of the things uh, that uh, Dr. Nicholas Cardaris is warning us about. He is the founder and chief clinical officer of Omega Recovery. He's a former clinical professor at Stony Brook Medicine and a best-selling author whose latest book is Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. Some of you, as I did, might have read uh, an excerpt in the New York Post on this on Sunday. And I have to say, I found it absolutely fascinating on the one hand and pretty frightening on the other. Dr. Cardaris, thank you for joining me on the radio. Yeah, hey, Frank, thanks for having me on uh, on your nocturnal travels here. Uh, believe me, I know it's a, a tough hour, so I, I appreciate <laughs> your uh, your willingness to come on. Hey, um, so in Reader's Digest version, obviously we want people to check out the book Digital Madness, but how is social media driving our mental health crisis? Yeah, well, I think so. The, the, the first step is beyond the obvious part that it's driving the depression epidemic that's happening. Depression has been skyrocketing over the last 10 to 15 years. So the, the basic premise there is that we weren't meant to be isolated, screen staring, sedentary creatures. And so the fact that it does those things on a very superficial level um, drives part of the depression process that mm. You know, we're just not meant to, you know, we're meant to be face-to-face connected and we're meant to be more physically active. And and let's face it, the digital age has been a nuclear bomb on physical activity and face-to-face contact. Um, What's also driving the depression factor, though, is something called the social comparison effect, where, you know, we're obviously, if you're on social media, you're comparing your life to however many dozens or hundreds of friends or people that you're seeing on social media as either your friends or or influencers. 
And so if someone's life looks fantastic in their curated social media profile, it amplifies your sense of maybe my life isn't so great. And so, so those two are the depression aspects of it. On, the, on a deeper level, I think it's changing the architecture of our brains to process, to only be able, if you're young and you've grown up in this medium, you're, we're seeing young people that are only able to process things in really black and white polarity, because that's what the medium is. The medium is an extremification um, platform. So there's not a lot of nuanced discussion. You don't really see the grays in between. And so we're seeing that that morphs itself into black and white thinking, which is very toxic for people. If you only see things in black and white, that's, that's symptomatic mm. of a lot of personality disorders and a lot of other types of issues. In addition to the obvious polarization in our society and the, the political world that we're in. And then you have the last piece of the puzzle, the last the cherry on the cake is the social contagion effect, where you do have influencers that are so impactful on some young people's lives that not only are they trying to emulate Kylie Jenner's empty materialism, but you have psychiatrically unwell influencers who are getting literally hundreds of millions and billions of views from Tourette's disorder to dissociative disorder to gender dysphoria whose followers are now beginning to mimic their disorders in conscious or unconscious ways. So that's the 30,000 foot view of how um, it's blowing us up psychiatrically um, and, and, and as a society. You know, that's, uh, you said a lot of really interesting uh, stuff there, and I want to follow up on, on each of them. We're talking with Dr. Nicholas Cardaris. His new book is Digital Madness, How Social Media is Driving Our Mental Health Crisis and How to Restore Our Sanity. Um, is, is, is the problem in terms of social media use and mental health just limited to teens or is the problem just more pronounced in teens? Does social media make all of us of any age a, a little less mentally well? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's not good for any of us, but teens are more vulnerable to it because they're more vulnerable. To, they're, they're more developmentally vulnerable and they're more tabula rasas. They have a less clear sense of what their identity is. I'm not sure. I don't know how old you are. I'm in, I'm in my 50s. And we'd like to think that as we get older, we get a little bit more solidified in our sense of identity and who we are. When we're less fully baked, we're obviously more impressionable from some of this shaping effect. Um, and so the depression aspect of that, is it just anecdotal instances of, uh, of depression that you're observing from people and teens or are, um, is there any data to support mm. that uh, depression is actually being driven by social media use? Yeah, so depression has been spiking before COVID in 2019. Depression, according to the World Health Organization, was the number one chronic, uh, uh, not mental illness, but, but overall illness. And it had been skyrocketing uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, correlating with social media even though the rates of antidepressant medications that we were prescribing had tripled. So we were increasing more psychiatric antidepressants. And yet, if you were looking at a, at a chart, the chart would be far outpacing the medications we were giving. So something was happening that was driving the depression. And so they were now, over the last seven to eight years, a handful of studies that specifically were looking at the effect of social media on depression and there were about five or six really good peer-reviewed studies that 
um, we're calling it the Facebook comparison effect. And, and in fact, in one study, it showed that the more friends you had on Facebook, the more likely you were to have clinical depression. So more Facebook friends equaled more depression uh, in an ironic twist. Uh, so yeah, so there's pretty strong data to connect the two. One of the things that you mentioned in the article in the New York Post, and you also referenced uh, today, anecdotally, I have absolutely found to be the case. And that's the issue of politics, ideological extremism. I could tell you as a longtime student and now a participant of talk radio, I Mm -hmm. hear it from uh, the callers uh, and the people that I speak to just anecdotally. There are fewer and fewer moderates out there. Mm-hmm. The people that are interested in in talking about politics and posting about politics and reading about politics, they used to – it wouldn't be unusual for somebody to sometimes vote Republican, sometimes vote mm-hmm. Democrat, to be fiscally conservative, socially liberal or vice versa. Now – um, I am seeing extremism across the board, and that, I think, has manifested itself in terms of the types of people that are getting elected. Explain to folks how social media can actually lead to greater ideological extremism. Yeah, so, you know, as I said in the article today, the coin of the realm in social media is views or followers, and what gets the most views and followers is the most over-the-top and extreme content thoughtful discourse, nuanced thinking, you're going to get one or two people listening or reading or whatever the the platform is. But when you get something that's at the extreme end, the thing that tickles our lizard brain the most, the thing that gets the most emotional reaction, that's what lights up. And not only does it light up, but then in, you know, in true feedback loop mode, or, you know, we call it an extremification loop, once the algorithm senses that you're leaning a, a certain direction politically, it's going to amp up the dosage of that, whatever that leaning is. So you're going to get an echo chamber effect. So now if you were you know, leaned a little bit to the left after six months of being uh, rinsed and repeated through the, the spin cycle of the algorithms, you're going to get that extremified significantly to the point that, you know, people that I work with, I, you know, I treat in clinics, young adults, they're not able to process. They, they have such a level of emotional reactivity mm. that they're not able to have, you know, back in the day when I was a university professor and you actually debated people and had thoughtful conversations with people on the other side of whatever the uh, thing you were discussing were. Today, you have people having emotional breakdowns if you challenge their thoughts because it's all emotional reactivity. It's all lizard brain and no critical thinking. Mm. Well, that is certainly a cause for concern. Maybe not so much as what you cited in terms of gender dysphoria. This is something that I have to tell you I've never thought about. I've spent a lot of time thinking about many of the issues that you raised, and we've chronicled on on the air the rise in the number of Um, young people that self-identify as non-binary or transgender or something along along those lines. How does social media increase gender dysphoria? So there's probably three or four disorders that are really popular on social media, either on TikTok videos or through a variety of other platforms. One is dissociative identity disorder, which is multiple, used to be multiple personality disorder, the other was borderline personality disorder. And the other one were people that were non-binary. 
And, and so if you fall down that rabbit hole, if you're a young high school age person, and let's face it, when we all went through high school, we're all going through sort of an exploratory phase. We're trying to figure things out. And I'm unhappy, let's say with necessarily my, my, where I'm at, or I'm not, I don't have a clearly defined sense of who I am. You know, in my day, you used to try to be a punk rocker or a jock or a, you know, I'm thinking of like the breakfast club and the, you know, different archetypes in that movie. Now, if you fall down the rabbit hole, the, the, the digital communities are so shaping in the sense that, um, if I were, and I've had clients that this has happened to, so you're confused, you're depressed, you're, you're a little self-loathing and you fall down, um, you happen to trip upon the, uh, a non-binary platform or an influencer who now really has this performative, either TikTok videos or the, the, the chat rooms, uh, because we're social animals that are shaped by our social environment, now our, our young people's social environment is almost entirely a digital landscape, mm. and it has a profound shaping effect on us. And, and what I've seen is people who might be showing symptoms of dissociative disorder or borderline personality disorder, uh, the way that you can tell whether they have the real disorder or not, and that includes gender dysphoria, is take them off of social media for four to eight weeks and if you still got the the disorder, then they may have the real thing. But if they've taken, if they're away from social media and they tend to sort of no longer show those kind of presenting issues, then it was a social contagion, huh. a digital social contagion. Um, you um, you spend some time talking about a patient named Susie in the New York Post article. It's not this person's real name, right? Uh, but uh, in a very interesting profile on Susie. Who was Susie? How was she affected by social media and what can other people learn from her? Yeah. Typical young woman from the Midwest, 22 year old who um, showed no red flags in through adolescence or high school, which again goes against the grain of genuinely having a personality disorder. And uh, so she came in diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, which is a pretty heavy it's a pretty heavy-duty personality disorder diagnosis. There, it's got a very high suicide risk and um, extremely difficult to treat. Very histrionic, very reactive. A lot of self uh, self injurious types of behavior. So she came in with some of those markers. You know, she was a cutter. She would cut her arms, and she had some depression. And and the long and the short of it was when we got to know her better. When our clinical director worked with her more closely and realized that she didn't have because if you have personality disorders, you, you show signs of that really early on. You don't develop it at, at 21 or 20. Found out that she had been really just swimming in social media 12 to 14 hours a day, mm. had been depressed because her friends from high school went off to college and she stayed at community college. And so she was left sort of isolated. And she started exploring different sites online and essentially tripped into a borderline personality site and there she learned how to cut herself, didn't mm. really genuinely have the real um, dynamics of a cutter. You know, real cutters will cut themselves because they'll talk about the emotional pain. The physical pain distracts them from the emotional pain. It's, uh, it's a sense of control. She was just doing it because she saw it on oh. TikTok. And, and, and so she, she starts getting diagnosed. And once you get diagnosed, you start getting, you know, sort of pushed along a certain track. And, uh, but we realized when she had been off of, cause in our program, you don't have, it's a residential program. There's no 
computers or smartphones. There's no social media. In two weeks, she was significantly better. She wasn't cutting. She wasn't suicidal. And it seemed to have been the transitory social media effect and what, we, what we're calling now a pseudo disorder that mimicked the real disorder, but was social media shaped. You testified recently at a trial in Florida of a, a young man named Corey Johnson. Corey Johnson, in January, at 21 years of age, was sentenced to life in prison after mm-hmm. he was convicted of first-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder. When he mm-hmm. was 17, he killed his friend at a sleepover in 2018, apparently because he was very impressed and taken with ISIS. Now, um how in the world does uh, going on social media lead a teenager to become a terrorist? Yeah, yeah, and that was a pretty, um, I got to tell you, that was a pretty um, eye-opening experience for me to be testifying. At, you know, the, just the trial photos themselves were shocking. And, uh, you know, you go down, because I, I met with him for four hours in maximum security. I had to do an assessment with him, and I spent quite a bit of time with him. And when I met him, because of COVID, his trial had been delayed for over a year at that point. So he'd been in prison away from any, let's call it external digital brainwashing, ideological brainwashing. And so he had sort of landed back to who he used to be before um, the brainwashing. And and what I told my wife when I flew back from Florida and came back home, you know, when you meet somebody that you know is he essentially decapitated a 13 year old boy and tried to kill these two other people in the most horrific of crimes. You expect to meet a Manson, um, you know, somebody, a a monster. And, and this kid was Frank, I got to tell you, he was sweet. He was polite, made good eye contact, Mm. shook my hand. I told my wife what was really shocking or troubling for me was if this kid would have filled out an ad to be a babysitter for our kids, I would have hired him. Mm. Um, he seemed so normal. Um, and so what happened with him was at age 16, he was politically progressive. He was always interested in politics. So he was a YouTuber. His main, um, digital, uh, platform was YouTube and, you know, the YouTube algorithm smells what predilections you have and then increases the amplitude of the, the, the recommended feed that it sends you. And so, he happened to watch uh, a short YouTube video about the Holocaust. And because he watched that, the algorithm started sending him Holocaust denying videos and then white supremacy videos. So within about three or four months, he became a white supremacist, progressive liberal at 16, white supremacist by 16 and a half. And then at some point he randomly saw a video, a YouTube video about Assad and uh, Syria and the conflict in Syria that was happening at the time. And within a couple of weeks, ISIS. He started getting ISIS recruitment videos. Now, the FBI showed me some of these recruitment videos, and these are slick, high production values. If I was a lost, confused kid looking for a team to belong to, these videos made ISIS seem appealing. They made ISIS seem like they were, you know, they built wells in their communities. They were about community empowerment. And so he got sucked in and brainwashed and seduced. And you know, I asked him because once he got recruited and converted to Islam, they started sending him decapitation videos. And he had seen at the time of the murders, he had been exposed to over, it was 1,100 or 1,200, you know, really graphic decapitation videos. And I said to Corey, I said, the first time you were sent a decapitation video, when, I mean, most people, 
And he said, yeah, the first time I almost vomited, I felt sick, but I felt like it was going to boot camp as a Marine. It was a toughening up, toughening up. And, and by the time I saw my 10th or my hundredth video, he had been desensitized to it. You know, and I, I kind of equated that to if you're a medical student and you have to do cadaver right. work, your first year of medical school, you almost vomit the first time, but by the 10th cadaver, you're having lunch over the cadaver. Sure. You get, you know, we all get used to things. And so, you know, in a year and a half, he went from nice kid to fully indoctrinated, brainwashed ISIS murderer. And, and as, I, as I write in the book, Digital Madness, 20 or 30 years ago, before social media, would this kid have been, you know, to be radicalized like that, you know, he might have joined a cult if he had a charismatic cult leader that might have done it the old-fashioned way. But now with the ubiquity and the pervasiveness of social media, these lost and lonely kids are the low-lying mm. fruit that are so easy to manipulate and pluck off with these algorithms that are like heat-seeking missiles finding these vulnerable kids. Uh, N- Dr. Cardaris, I have to I have to run. We're out of time. I have a, a lot of other questions on this. I'd love to continue the conversation um, in a week or two if we can convince you to stay up late for uh, another uh, another day. I hope everybody checks out your book, Digital Madness. Thank you. And as an Art Bell fan, I'm, I'm used to staying up late. So uh, sure, it'd be a pleasure. I, I appreciate that. And if people didn't see that article in the post today, I've just linked to it on my Facebook page. If Only go on Facebook long enough to avoid mental illness. <laughs> Facebook.com slash Morano fan. There's actually some very helpful hints on how you can avoid having social media become addictive. And for you or a child or a grandchild, there's some helpful hints as to not have social media being a deleterious impact on your on your psyche. Uh, if you want to comment, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. midnight. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.